This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This is one of my most favorite topics. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was brand new to me when we first started working together, and I I can't tell you how many people I've told about. Not that they're necessarily in need of something, but, Mm -hmm. hey, did you know that this exists? And people go, no, really? Or, yeah, oh, I've heard about that. And it's called the Consumer Proposal. Yeah, and Elaine, I get calls from accountants, from lawyers, from sophisticated finance professionals, and they don't know either. Oh, good. Thank you for including me in that group. (laughs) Well, there you go. And I remember even myself, you know, I graduated from business school. I was working at an accounting firm in Toronto, one of the big four. I had no idea about consumer proposals until I saw in one of the, you know, monthly accounting newsletters, a case study. And I saw, wow, this person had $20,000 in debt. They reduced it down to six. They didn't have to go bankrupt. And I thought, wow, I need to know more about that. But it's something that people don't understand enough about. And that's why we do the show is to get all this great information out to our listeners. Is it a, is it a new, is it, how, how old a concept is or process is the consumer proposal? You know, I want to say it was early 2000s when it was okay. first put into, into legislation. But it was about 2009 is when the government changed the laws and made bankruptcy longer and more difficult than it was previously to encourage people to use consumer proposals. So I've been doing this work about the last 13 years. When I first started, it was rare that we saw people that wanted to do proposals. Now it's almost 70% of folks end up filing proposals. And some people come in and are completely surprised this even exists. Other people have done the research. They know the proposal they want to file. They know which creditors are difficult and which ones aren't. So uh, some people are getting more and more informed. Cool. Well, mm-hmm. the, and this segment is all about the consumer proposal, the ins and outs of it, how it works. Um, so let's get started. Mm-hmm. Uh, when so when it's if debt has started to become overwhelming, one of the first options people think about is debt consolidation. Yeah, that's that's pretty typical, right? Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because when you consolidate debt, you've just got one payment to worry about, you know, typically a lower interest rate. It's a lot more simple. And ideally, there's some savings there. And the consumer proposal is really based on that principle of debt consolidation. But there's so much more to it. Yeah. So debt consolidation, but with two really big differences. So where they're similar is that all the debts are put together and there's one payment that you make. But one of the big differences is in a consumer proposal, you're not paying back typically 100 cents on the dollar unless that's what you can afford to pay back. Most people can afford to pay back 20 cents on the dollar, 30 cents, 40 cents, something like that, but some significant discount to the amounts that are owing. So, so that's a big difference. Yeah, big difference. So 20 to 40%, is that sort of your average of where people fall into? Yeah, that's a very good starting point. If I'm sitting down with someone knowing nothing about the situation, I'm usually starting with, okay, 30 cents on the dollar might be a ballpark of a proposal. Now, if the person has a whole lot of assets, a whole lot of money in the bank, things like that, we might not be able to offer that little. But conversely, if someone is really in a tough situation, we might be able to offer 20 cents on the dollar. So it, it does vary situation to situation, but for the most part, it's significant discount on the debt. So one big difference is that you don't pay back the debt in full. The other big difference is in a consolidation loan, you're typically still paying interest and probably 10, 12% for the most part, which is much better than 19 to 30%, but it's still you're paying interest. In a consumer proposal, zero interest. 
So big difference. Big difference there. Zero interest and no professional fees on top of what you pay. Whatever your payment is, that's what you can afford. Everybody gets paid out of that, your debts and the trustee. So there's one payment that you're making Mm -hmm. per month, and that's covering everybody. And that's an important um, thing to remember as we go through this. Uh, Also, the consumer proposal isn't alone. And I think that's that's a really good, I hadn't seen that before, but I think that's a really good thing to mention. Mm -hmm. It's not alone. Yeah, and I have people coming in where that's their conception of it. It's okay, trustee, I guess you've got some fun behind you and you're (laughs) going to pay off these debts and then I'm going to pay you back. And say, no, that's not how it works at all. So um, I've only got what you're going to pay into your trust account for the proposal. So when I do a proposal, let's say it's $20,000 of debt being reduced down to $6,000, I'm not handing them $6,000. I'm handing them your promise to give them $6,000 over the next five years. And in exchange for that promise, you get protection. You get that they can't opt out of this as long as you make all the payments on time. You're protected for the full time in that proposal. And at the end of you paying off the $6,000, the full $20,000 debt gets discharged. So it's basically a promise and you make good in that promise over time. But there's no loaning of money. There's no pot of money the trustee has. It's Everything is just an arrangement. And you help me work out exactly what makes the best sense for me to pay per month mm-hmm. to satisfy my debtors. Uh, and really, I, you know, peace of mind, my mm-hmm. peace of mind, I think, would go with that. Yeah, a person's peace of mind. Exactly. So we're driven by a couple things. We're driven by, you know, what's the household budget? What can the person reasonably afford? And we have to make sure a proposal doesn't create undue hardship or else by law, I'm not allowed to file it. I have to sign off on every proposal. I believe it's in people's best interest. So we have to make sure it can be affordable. Um, and then we also have to make sure that it's a reasonable recovery on the debt. So as long as it's something that's better than a situation of a bankruptcy, if a bankruptcy is going to give the creditors back zero cents in the dollar, then a proposal offering 20 to 30 cents it should be very attractive to creditors. All right. And now there's so many questions I've got on this that I think are really important to make sure that we talk about. Um, But the first thing that you've mentioned here in the notes for this segment is that a consumer proposal automatically stops further interest from accruing on your debt. Mm -hmm. Really important to know. Yeah. And that's just by law. So the day you file a consumer proposal, I like to tell people, okay, the target stopped moving away from you today. Because right now the target's moving away from you at 20% per month. Right? And if you think of what you're paying on interest, your minimum payments, you're just not getting anywhere. As soon as you file a proposal, the interest goes to zero by law. And your debts are frozen at whatever that amount is. At that moment you filed the proposal, they can't charge you another dollar of interest. Excellent. So do you want to talk about the key factors that you guys, that a, that a licensed insolvency trustee such as yourself uh, would look at when I sit down with you? Yeah. So, so two main things. So we have to figure out what's the total amount of the debt and what percentage can we offer. So, you know, sometimes if I have people come in and maybe through no fault of their own, but the debts are massive, you know, there could have been an ICBC accident where they were uninsured. Uh, maybe that is fault of their own. But anyway, sometimes debts can be just so extreme that trying to offer back, you know, 20 to 40 percent of of two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars of debt, it's just not going to be possible. So it's got to be a situation where the total amount of debt is still reasonable. Um, by law, a consumer proposal can be used for debts up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay, that's, that's excluding a mortgage, so you can still have a big mortgage. But as long as your consumer debts are under two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you could be eligible to file a consumer proposal. But I'd say for the most part, proposals are in the range of probably forty to eighty thousand uh, dollars of total debt that we then reduce down to about a third of that amount. And if my amount, if my debt amount is over two hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, then we would talk about 
uh, the other option, which would be to file for bankruptcy. Yeah, so bankruptcy would be another option. There is still, there's kind of an archaic style, an older style of a proposal that could still apply if debts are over $250,000, but it's in very specific situations. So you'd want to sit down with your trustee and understand that one. Perfect. Mm -hmm. All right. So looking at the total amount of your debt Mm -hmm. and your monthly household income. Yeah. So as we talked about, whatever we do, it's got to fit into the budget. And, you know, sometimes even if there's a third party that wants to help out, that can be fine. That can help to fit the budgetary gap. So I often say, and sometimes families come in as, as a whole and there might be someone in the family who's got some resources you know they could choose to pay the person's debt off in full or what's better in my opinion is let's do a consumer proposal and that if you want to help the person pay off that consumer proposal the family is much better off because the debt's been reduced down to a reasonable amount and then the person has come through a proceeding with the trustee where they've gotten some counseling they figured out this is serious they've dealt with their issues um, they're going to be much better off rather than the family member just paying it and saying hey don't do this again Right. Um, and I think the counseling part is really important. Uh, having had a number of the different of different people from, from Sands and Associates come on the show and talk about that's what their job is, is they're part of that counseling process, uh, just to really help you figure out uh, where you went wrong, mm-hmm. the choices you made maybe weren't the best ones based on your situation, and how to how to move forward nicely. Yeah, exactly. What's, what's the future going to hold? And hopefully, you know, you'll send us a nice card in the future, but you won't be back in our offices, ideally. Nice. Mm -hmm. So once you know what you're set to offer your creditors, what happens next? Yeah. So once you filed the proposals, you sit down with the trustee and normally you'll meet with the trustee about three times before you're signing the document. So you got the first initial consultation where it's very informal, talk about the options. Second meeting is normally where you bring back a bunch more information. So you know your pay stubs, your tax return, your debt statements and things like that. And the third meeting is when we've structured the proposal and you sit down, you sign the proposal and that's when you're protected. As soon as we file the proposal, we send it out to all of your creditors and they have to vote back to us within 45 days of the day of the filing. So you get a copy of the documents as well at the same time. And then it's just a bit of a waiting game at that point. There's nothing you can do. And essentially your trustee has sent the proposal to the creditors. We're just waiting for them to answer back. For a proposal to get approved, what's great about this tool too is if you've got one creditor that no way, no how is ever going to negotiate a reduction, they want to sue you, they want to take you to court and see you hang, so to speak, all these things, as long as they're not 50% of your debt, they can be forced to go along in a consumer proposal because all we need is 50% by dollar value to say yes. Okay. So that creditor might even be the government. It might be the government taking your wages, but if they're not a majority of your debt, if your other creditors want a consumer proposal to succeed, that's enough to make it legally binding on all of your debts. The other thing let's include is who the creditors can be, who mm-hmm. going to a licensed insolvency trustee uh, gives me that protection with my, my debtors. It can be banks, credit yeah. card companies, the government in all cases. Yeah. No, oh. it, it's any debt anywhere in the world. So okay. even if it's a foreign debt and they're trying to collect in Canada, a proposal will protect you from that. Uh, very few exceptions, you know, things like child support, spousal support. If there was a court order of awards against you, you know, for, for bodily harm, there's a few things that you can't deal with, but they're a very small list and they're the common sense things. Okay. Uh, the one that's not common sense is student loans and you have to be out of school at least five to seven years uh, for us to really do much with student loans. But if you're facing student loans, we've got a bunch of other segments. We've talked about that. I'm sure it'll come up again in the future. Excellent. All right. So then the creditors accept the proposal. Mm-hmm. 
What happens next? Oh, <laughs> what the, happy thing happens next? Yeah, the person breathes a big sigh of relief yeah. and they say, oh my God, the proposal that I offered actually got accepted because, you know, I help people sign proposals all the time and everyone is still, they're still antsy at that point. They're still, you know, what's the success rate? Is this still real? Is it really going to happen? And, you know, I can tell people my experience in the last year, I had one proposal fail. One. And oh, that's I do, pretty good. I do a ton every month and I'm dealing with a lot of different client situations. And the situation that failed, it was someone who hadn't filed taxes for 10 years. It was only tax debt and CRA just was not willing to give that person the opportunity to do a proposal. I understood it a bit. We advocated as best as we could, but we couldn't reach a deal. In other cases, 95% of the time, they accept our first offer in a proposal. And it's quite simple. Just more is better than less. I show them a bankruptcy at zero or a proposal at 30 cents in the dollar. Most of the time, they'll say yes. Uh, so 95% percent on the first offer, 99% of the time, if we have to negotiate, we still reach a successful outcome. Okay. And the, uh, my reporter uh, side of me says, what mm-hmm. happened to the first one where the, where CRA wouldn't negotiate? How did that end? Uh, the person ended up filing for bankruptcy. Okay. And that was CRA's idea was that they go through bankruptcy, then they're going to have to disclose everything. They, CRA can ask extra questions and things like that. So okay. they wanted the person to go through to understand why for 10 years they hadn't filed a tax return. Good. But you, wa- you walked with them through that oh, process. Yeah. We're still working through it. Right, okay. And yeah, we have a lot of folks that are in that situation, and sometimes proposals can be accepted for tax debt, sometimes not, but bankruptcy will typically give you that fresh start. Excellent. So if any of this is resonating with you, make that appointment, 1-800-661-3030. Talk to somebody at Sands & Associates. Check out their website if you want to do that first, and then call sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, you walked in here with a new study, Mm -hmm. which is always interesting to me. I always enjoy seeing what the stuff that you care about and that you pay attention to. And it was a, when did it come out? Came out in the middle of March. That's right. Yeah, I got a bunch of Google alerts. So every day I'm looking at different things, but anything to do with debt, it obviously piques my interest quite a bit. And it says almost two thirds of the people asked and talked to in this poll anticipate new forms of debt in 2019. New forms of debt. So Mm -hmm. is that new forms of debt to them or are these new categories altogether? No, new forms of debt to them. So this is saying if they didn't have a payday loan, well, 3% of people think that they're going to have that next year. Um, You know, if they didn't have a personal loan, well, 8% of people think they're going to have that next year. So um, it's, yeah, Majority, two-thirds of people think that their debt situation is probably either going to get worse or at least change a little bit with just different forms of debt. And and it was... Um a specific age group, so or, or at least it was divided up into age groups, right? So those under mm-hmm. 55 are significantly more likely to anticipate new forms of debt. Uh, 23% anticipate new uh, credit card balance. So was it done by ages or was it just done in a group? No, I think they did segment the, the material. Segmented yeah, debt. the findings by, by age there. And it was done by Leger Research. So a okay. very reputable uh, research agency yeah. with you know a few thousand people in their panel, people that they survey. And one of the things I took away from 
from this too, and it's something that I'm seeing more and more, it's just this normalization of debt. Like mm. people thinking it's the new normal, everybody's got debt and it's okay. I think that's a really good point. And mm-hmm. we see it and, and we can't help but feel that sometimes, I think, in the yeah. lower mainland. Oh, exactly. Because the, the cost of living and yeah. the cost of, of owning a home or having a home of any kind, right? Yeah. And then you've got these innovative new types of credit. And innovative is usually not a good thing when it comes <laughs> to credit because it means higher cost, higher fees. So what's interesting to me too is the idea of debt's become so normal that we're less fearful about it than perhaps we should be. So when I see people are talking about they might have a payday loan next year or more debt next year, when they're actually looking at those payday loan documents, they should be, you know, really shocked at the interest rates and the fees and things like that. But we're so accustomed to debt that a lot of people are barely reading the contracts, like your iTunes agreement there. You just kind of scroll through it. And because we're just used to it, we just assume it's all fine. Now, can we differentiate there with age group? Like, is there, are older people more likely uh, to fall in, have fallen into that attitude? Or are we looking no, at the younger opposite. people? It's younger people for yeah. sure. So if I see older folks who have, say, payday loans to pick on them, for example, older folks are typically, their eyes are downcast. Like, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done this, but hey, I got into a few payday loans. Uh, I see folks, you know, more millennial type of age. Uh, they might have six or eight of them and Money Mart's been marketing to them for 20 years. They don't think this is a bad thing. The, you know, wow. a payday loan is not necessarily their last resort, just something, hey, we use to make ends meet when we need it. So um, again, things that should be very infrequent, uh, it seems like a, a younger generation is thinking that debt is, you know, again, it's more just a fact of life where it shouldn't be. Debt-free should be the, the default aspect of life. So if I've got somebody in my head that I know that's a young person that I'm fearful for that have fallen into that category, can I send them to your website? Yeah, of course. Is there, is there information there that would actually speak to a younger person versus just a, an average person? Yeah, in some of the most recent debt studies that we've done, so we talked on the show every year, we do a really in-depth debt study. Uh, we actually segment a lot of the materials out and focusing on a youth generation under 30, kind of a midlife generation of you know uh, 30 to 54, and then the retiree or pre-retirement generation. Okay, we've also got some really specific uh, research. It's done about three years ago where we went to campus and asked people about their financial expectations. How much did they think they would earn after graduation? Um, and compare that to the actual reality, which people are woefully optimistic yeah. <laughs> about what they think they'll earn versus the reality, which again leads to why a lot of folks have trouble once they graduate and paying down their debts. Okay. All right. So let's go back to this study. Yeah. Um, now, what's the other thing? Because you had sort of a, you have an issue with it. Well, I've got a big issue with this. <laughs> so the first one I thought, okay, that's a little bit of, you know, a downer people anticipating new forms of debt, new and wonderful innovations to keep us in debt. But but the second finding in here just really shocked me because I felt, and as I looked a little bit more into depth in this, I thought this is sending the wrong message to people and, again, normalizing a behavior that shouldn't be normalized, which is cashing in assets to pay debt. Okay. So the headline here is 2 in 10 with debt say they will need to liquidate assets to help pay off or pay down their debt this year. And, you know, 19% agreed uh, or somewhat agreed to it, uh, 20% somewhat disagreed, so on and so forth. But, you know, 2 in 10? That's relatively significant to me, um, and that included everything from RRSPs to vehicles, um, you know, to personal assets that probably could have been exempt. Um, that they wouldn't necessarily have to give up if they did find themselves in debt. 
Okay, so, and why is it such a bad idea? So, most people, when they, talk, when they talk about RRSPs, for example, they don't think about the impact when they cash them in. So, um, actually, just this morning, I was on Global News, and we were talking about the potential impact when you cash in RRSPs from a tax perspective, and it's a double whammy. Mm-hmm. You got the tax refund when you put the money in, which is great, but it's the complete opposite when you take the money out. So, you cashing in assets to pay debt, you get hit with a tax bill. It's usually not enough to pay off the debt in full, and then you've just compromised your retirement. So my worry here is that people are hearing, you know, two in 10 Canadians think they're going to have to cash in assets to pay debt, and that could include RRSP. So why don't I cash in my RRSP? I'm just going to be like two in 10 Canadians. And that's the worst possible financial decision anybody could ever make. I can't be more clear about that, I think, uh, is cashing in your RRSPs to pay debt. It's a double whammy. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to add on the RRSP? No, the RRSPs, I think we, we've hit pretty hard. But the other thing is just this idea of kind of a one-time solution to your debt mm-hmm. problem is, you know, you've only got one set of assets to cash in. And sometimes it's the easier, and not that it's easy, but the easier option is just to liquidate some assets, pay off the debt, because it doesn't force you to solve the underlying problem, which might be a budgetary imbalance or something else going on every month that's leading to you being in debt. So oftentimes people cash in assets, they feel great for a while, um, and then the debt problem reemerges because you haven't solved the underlying cause. Right. So could you help me solve the underlying cause? If I'm in this situation, if I'm thinking I'm going to start liquidating stuff... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you come in for a consultation. One of the first things we look at is the budget. And we have to figure out, you know, especially in Vancouver, if 50% of your after-tax income is going to your rent, you're going to have to make some hard decisions about your other expenditures. So there's just so only so much to go around. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the other piece of this, I know that this really irks you, mm-hmm. is who's behind the study. Yeah, so there's an element of a conspiracy theorist to me, I guess. But um, this study was in partnership. Uh, it was Leger Marketing, and it was with Credit Canada, uh, which sounds very very innocuous. Credit Canada. Yeah, sounds is, very good. Yeah, it's a not-for-profit, not a charity. They were stripped of their charitable status recently, but they're a not-for-profit <laughs> credit counseling agency. Um, and then I also printed off, and wonderful in radio, you can't see it, but it's a credit counseling agency that is registered as a collection agency uh, about 10 times over in the province of Ontario, so each of their various uh, offices there. So we've got a collection agency that's partnered with a market research firm to get some legitimacy who is giving consumers the idea that everyone's going to be more in debt and to solve it, you should be liquidating your assets. Got it. So that's my feeling is that if this was saying, hey, collection agency sponsored this study, we would know to discount it right away. But when we hear it's sponsored by Credit Canada, that almost sounds like a government an organization. You know, why wouldn't we trust what they would have to say? Yeah, the average person is going to go think, oh, all right, oh, I need to pay attention to this. These Mm -hmm. are smart people. They're after my best interests, when in fact... You have to question that. It could be the opposite. Could Indeed. be the opposite. All right. Uh, did you want to mention at least one example? Yeah, I, I really like that when we talk every month about some clients we've been able to help. Yes. Um, so one person I was really proud of this month. So he's about 35 years old and he was a skilled tradesman, but he'd had some health issues. He had about $55,000 in consumer debt, getting a ton of collection calls. I could just see the stress on his face when we sat down the first time. Yeah. And his minimum payments, he was earning $3,200 a month, 1600 was required for his minimum payments and the debts weren't going down. He's just clearing the interest each month and that's that. Uh, We filed a consumer proposal. We reduced his debt from $55,000 to less than half to about $23,400 in total. Um, And he's paying the proposal off over a three-year term at 6 
650 per month. So from 1600 on the never never plan to 650 on the three year get out of debt plan. Nice. Oh, I'm so glad that you that we had time to mention that. If any of this information is resonating with you, go to the website sands-trustee.com. It's just chock-a-block full of great questions and great answers as well. Give them a call 1-800-661-3030. Get that consultation as well find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we've been talking about uh, the different generations that this province and I guess this country is made up of. I guess we could probably even say it's mm-hmm. bigger than that. Uh, we're talking in this in this segment about BC's pre-retirement and retirement generation and those folks in debt. So again, financial challenges, everybody experiences them, doesn't matter what age uh, we're at. And Sands and Associates does this annual study looking at trends and key information, all the debt about the BC residents facing financial difficulties. And you found this is one of the other groups, pre-retirement, retirement generation. Who are these folks? I mean, we've sort of defined them, but what mm-hmm. kind of age group are we talking about today? Yeah, so for our survey population, we uh, defined anyone that's pre-retirement, retirement as somebody aged 55 and over. Um, and, you know, definitely uh, this is a you know, a topic that's getting more and more airplay these days, you know, the idea of senior citizens in debt, you know, retiring with debt or continuing to accumulate debt in retirement. And the reason it's getting a lot more airplay is because it's a massive problem. It's bigger than it ever was before. Uh, There was a study done a couple of years ago by the Vanier Institute where they compared the bankruptcy rate for senior citizens uh, from 1980 until 2015. And it wasn't double, it wasn't triple, it wasn't five times higher, it was 19 times higher. That's a lot. It's a ridiculous difference. And it's more than just the fact that they're the boomers, right? They're the tail end of the boomers. That huge uh, bulge of the population are now moving into retirement age or pre-retirement age, right? I mean, it's it. you're looking at dollars and cents at this point. Oh, yeah. It's not just that there's more people, therefore there, there's more bankruptcies. This is the incidence rate. So it's controlling for the population on a per capita basis. Seniors are more at risk of debt problems than ever before. And why, why is that? That sounds a bit crazy. Yeah, there's a bunch of factors for it. You know, a a big part of it is just this mismatch of income and expenses. You know, every year expenses go up. You know, we've got to pay for things and more every single year. And often seniors are on a fixed income. Um, So, you know, their pension might be indexed slightly, but usually not to the same effect as prices going up. And we've seen massive amounts of food inflation, you know, shelter Mm -hmm. cost inflation in the past few years. So, you know, a piece of it is just the erosion of buying power. You know, a lot of it too is people weren't you know, appropriately ready to retire. You know, in some Mm. cases they had debt when they stepped into retirement. And if all you're doing is paying the minimums on those debts, you'll probably never pay that debt off. So, you know, we have folks that had a certain debt level and thought they'd clear it before they were going to retire and they weren't able to do so. And now they've got that debt problem in retirement. Okay. And there's two very specific groups within that one group in terms of money that that they are in debt with. Yeah. In terms of the amount of debt. So again, the survey population is people that reached out to us for help. So people that realize they had a problem with their debt, they need to sit down, have a free consultation with a professional. And for one in three people, that that metric of when they knew they needed help, it was between twenty five and $49,000 of debt. 
So you can imagine that's very significant, right? Yeah, you know, going not, into pre-retirement with that kind of debt. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's but a lot. what what's even more shocking is you know second to that. So that was one one in three or thirty three percent. A full twenty six percent of respondents to the survey actually owed more than that. They owed fifty to ninety nine thousand dollars. And we're talking this is outside of mortgages, outside of car loans. This is consumer debt. So credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, income taxes. Yes, seniors sometimes do have student loans. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's just a, a massive number. Um, this generation also had the largest proportion of people who owed $100,000 or more, which wow. again, you can just imagine that's a, that's a pretty hard, hard thing to get your head around $100,000 of debt. You know, part of it could be they've got, you know, more time to accumulate debt. They're obviously older than a youth generation would be. Um, but also it just speaks to a lack of resources to retire the debt. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Right. So how did how did they get into this situation? Yeah, so we, we asked that question and the, the most common response, it's almost the same across all the demographics is we all put it on ourselves. So we say, you know, it was overextension of credit. It was financial mismanagement. That was 30% of, of survey respondents said to us, you know what, I could have done a better job, but I just didn't manage things the right way. Having done this work for a long time, I'm of the view it's never just one um, cause. And, you know, usually it's not just the individual. You know, yes, you ran up the credit cards, but did the bank have to give $50,000 of credit to somebody on a fixed income? No, you didn't have to say yes either, but they didn't have to offer it. So there there can be some shared responsibility. Sure. Now, the other factors are what you would tend to think. Um, so the second largest reason why people, senior citizens, or the pre-retirement generation would have difficulties is illness. Illness, injury, or health-related problems. So, you know, obviously, common sense-wise, as we age, our productive capacity decreases. We start to have more, you know, issues with our health. And just, you know, a small health issue can sun- suddenly snowball if it impacts your ability to earn income. Income and keep up on some debt payments if you're already in debt. Right, and the and the key thing too that you mentioned, it's not necessarily just this generation too that has that kind of a number of illness, injury, mm-hmm. health related problems because we've talked in the past in a, about a, a young woman who was in her 30s yeah. who got into a, a debt situation because she had was dealing with cancer. So mm-hmm. it's not just this uh, generation that has that, but it's certainly a component. And what's the last one, or what's the third one that you've seen? Yeah, the, the last one is all job related. So whether it's an unemployment you know, forced to take an early retirement, a layoff, a reduction in pay. Um, age discrimination is alive and well. I see Absolutely it every it day in my office. Very yeah. qualified people who, you know, maybe they were downsized from a job, you know, three years ago that paid them very well and used all of their skills, and they're struggling to find something for half of the pay these yeah. days. And uh, what they can come down to, and I, I don't disagree, is people don't necessarily want to hire somebody in that type of, in that generation. It's not fair, but it's a reality these yeah. days. Yeah, and they've left their job or had to leave the job because somebody else has come in the door, the other door that they're on their way out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. So how did, so what were the things, the indicators for these folks that they knew they, they had a serious debt issue? Yeah, for the most part, it was what you would have anticipated. You know, people were getting collection calls, you know, um, calling the morning, noon, and night, making a bunch of threats that can be very distressing to anybody, let alone somebody from an older uh, generation when, you know, clearly not that our word means nothing today, but your word really meant something, you know, for someone born, you know, the 30s, 40s, or, or 50s. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just, there's just a different level, um, I, I find anyway, of, you know, morality of, you know, the personalization of debt that I borrowed this money and I've got to pay it back no matter yeah. what it does to me. So some collection calls can just send that over the top for some individuals. Um, what was really interesting to me um, is the number one cause that caused people to reach out to us was they realized they're only making minimum payments. So that's been a message, Elaine, you and I have tried to get out, you know, for the, the time we've been doing this show is if all you're doing is making your minimum payments, you are not getting ahead. You're falling further behind 
behind each month. So is there a period of time, let's just focus on that for a second, is there a period of months or a number of months that if I'm making minimum payments for two months, but then I'm, then I'm back on the third month and being able to uh, make a larger payment mm-hmm. on my credit card, for example, am I still in trouble at that point? Or is there, like, is there a, you know, a fail-safe number that we should be looking at? Yeah, everyone's situation is different. It's a very good question. I would say, yeah, if you have to make your minimum payments for a few months for a temporary reason, uh, but you know you can catch things back up later, you probably don't have a problem. That's the reason why the minimum payments are set so low is to give you that type of flexibility that if life intervenes and you need to, you know, just pay $100 instead of $500 uh, for a month or two, that's fine. The problem is when it gets to you're struggling to even make that minimum payment. Sometimes you're only making it because it's a cash advance on another card. That's when you get into the impossible situation because eventually you're going to run out of credit space in all of your cards, too many minimum payments to to be made, and the debts have probably multiplied at that point because every month they're just adding more interest on top of interest. Right. So I'm thinking if, if if you've done this two months in a row, you yeah. need to take some action. Yeah, I'd, I'd say ha- have a conversation, right? Yeah. If you if you look to the forward and you can't see how it's going to change, yes. yeah, speak to a trustee. It's a free meeting. We're not going to judge you. We're just going to tell you what your options are. Yeah, good point. Okay, great. Um, what kind of things do did, did this particular generation tend to use to try to get out of debt before they called you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first thing people do when they find themselves in, in a debt situation is they try to cut their expenses. So, you know, most common ones for the senior demographic is entertainment and dining out. That's the first to go. You know, okay. that's viewed as more of a frivolous indulgence. Sure. And yeah, at a certain level it is, but we all you know need a little bit every once in a while, but definitely that's the first to go. Uh, clothing and, and personal shopping, definitely the second to go, you know, wear old clothes or thrift store or things like that. Yeah. Um, the third one is savings and or retirement contributions. So when I'm going there to take money out of my mm-hmm. savings and use it to pay off my debts, yeah. that's, that's a huge red flag. Oh, yeah. So the, the worst case for this could be the pre-retirement generation, say someone who's 55 and maybe 10 years away from retirement, and they think they're doing everything right by cashing in their RRSPs to pay their debt because they don't know that RRSPs are protected. Right. And that's the key. Your RRSPs are protected under yeah. a consumer proposal and a bankruptcy yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. Even if you didn't do either of those, they're protected under federal law. If somebody sued you, they couldn't take your RRSPs. See, that's really, really important for mm-hmm. people to know. Yep. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. Uh, using assets to pay down their debt. Yeah, so so quite often seniors will, you know, if they've got any real estate, they're going to go and get either a reverse mortgage or a home equity line of credit and, you know, use all of that that equity to, to pay out the debts. And we get bombarded with those mm-hmm. ads and commercials and suggestions that that's a great way to do it. Yeah, and you've got to be buyer beware. In some situations, it is a great way. In some situations, I have clients that wish they had never heard the name of that, of that program because it hasn't been good for them. Uh, so each generation facing owns their own specific challenges. What are some of the uh, ones that the pre-retirement retirement generation are up against at this point? Well, one that I hear a lot is that, you know, retirement, it should be all about them and their needs, but quite often they're still um, supporting either adult children or grandchildren, mm. you know, the bank of grandma or grandpa, it's it's still alive and well Absolutely quite often. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Yeah. So there can be pressure, you know, whether it's social or otherwise, you know, um, to, to really 
ex- make some expenditures for the family, whether it's paying for a trip or paying for education for somebody. Um, and sometimes the the senior citizen doesn't really want to let everyone know the tough situation that they're in. So they just say yes. And, yeah. and they do their best and they put things on credit, hoping to deal with it another day. Even like special classes or courses or programs that they want their grandkids to do. I mean, I've seen and heard, uh, you know, grandparents who just spending a fortune and I'm thinking, how, how can you guys, how can you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other piece of it is, of course, pensions, are are any pensions tied to uh, the rate of inflation anymore, or are they all just stagnant and yeah, I mean, depending well, on depending on the pension, yeah. yeah. So you know, again, some cost of living arrangements, you know, for OAS or CPP or some okay. private pensions. So, but you know, usually again, it's less than what your actual inflation is. Um, you know, food inflation has been massive, as have you know, fuel and different things in the past few years, far greater than what the index has shown. So it's a fixed income. Yeah, it's, it's, essentially, yeah. There, there's no big windfalls. There's no huge increase to to your financial resources each month. And, you know, another thing, Elaine, that, that we see too in this demographic, and I was quite surprised, but it's the idea of gray divorce. So it's people divorcing, you know, much later in life than you might have thought. You know, they've raised the kids, the kids are gone, and kind of they look at each other and say, well, why are we still together yeah, here? I'm so, out of here. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, trying to live through a divorce at Very that, that stage in your life, um, you know, there could be some division of retirement assets, there could be, you know, sales of various things, and there could be some debts that, you know, we know one partner might be left holding the back. Yeah, especially, uh, you know, real estate is often the the retirement Mm -hmm. uh, investment or the thing that's going to get you through. And yikes, with a gray divorce, that's just not going to be the case. Sands and Associates, they're the ones to talk to. Nice and easy to do. Sands-trustee.com is the website. You can book a free consultation with one of their experts. Their phone number uh, that they're available at, certainly during the week, Monday to Friday, 1-800-661-3030, and get that free consultation and find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Hey, listen, for information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call one 800 661 3030 for a free consultation or to find an office near you. Now, we're talking about if you're in debt and you've got a whole bunch of things, you're a busy person, you've got a whole bunch of areas that concern you on a regular basis, there are some what we're going to call sneaky credit killers Mm -hmm. that is really important to pay attention to. So these are things that could impact or hurt your credit rating. So basic mistakes that folks make, uh, and here's the key, they are basic, so Mm -hmm. it's not like you're alone in thinking this. Uh, We've got a list together of the top five mistakes that can hurt your credit rating, and Let's just start at the at the first one. Why yeah. is leaving unpaid cell phone bills or paying your bill late on a regular basis top of the list, Blair? Yeah, this one was so hard to believe for me and so surprising, but it's actually the number one reason why when people go and seek a mortgage approval, sometimes it comes back with, hey, your credit rating isn't good enough. We're not going to approve you or we're going to give you, you know, a non-prime rate. Uh, the number one reason for that is unpaid cell phone bills. That's crazy yeah. that that would impact a mortgage. Yeah. And it's often, it's the smallest expense each month. Maybe it's less than $100 or somewhere in, in around there. Yeah. Um, but just by paying that late every month, cell phone companies, I don't know whether it's 
it's a conscious decision or not, I feel like it is a conscious decision, Mm -hmm. they are the quickest of any creditor you'll ever deal with to suddenly throw you into collections. Mm -hmm. And once you go into collections, you get the incessant phone calls, but even more than that, you get the negative ticks on your credit report. So every debt that you have is going to say, do you pay it on time? Do you pay it late? Are you delinquent? So on and so forth. As soon as you've missed a couple payments on your cell phone bill, you can bet dollars to donuts, they're going to be every month putting a tick on your credit report. If that persists for months or a year or longer, it can be a you know a negative history that's going to be a bit tough for you, for you to outweigh with even the positive things that you're doing. And in this day and age, one feels like you have to have a cell phone. Mm-hmm. So once you've got those uh, checks against you, yeah. it's tough, right? It's tough to come back from that, even to get onto another plan or, mm-hmm. but mortgage, that's that's surprising me, right? Yeah, so the big takeaway here is, you know, don't assume just because it's a small amount that it's suddenly inconsequential. It's absolutely not. And again, the the practice of the cell phone companies is they will hurt your credit quickly. And again, it's a collection tool. They, they tell you this, we're going to send you to collections. It's going to have an impact on your credit and right. they will follow through on that. Okay. Too high a balance on my credit cards? Yeah. So there's a metric that's uh, called credit utilization. And it's really simple. It says, you know, if you've got a $1,000 limit and your balance is consistently at $750, you're at 75% of utilization. So what is your balance and what percentage, you know, are are you using? And credit bureaus work a little bit differently in that sometimes they'll pull information in the middle of the month when the balance is high, or sometimes they'll pull it at the end of the month when you've just paid it off. So, you know, sometimes you might say, well, this is never a problem for me because my balance might be high, but I pay it off every single month. Right. But if the credit bureau has pulled that information from the middle of the month when you were at, you know, 90, 95% utilization, that can be a negative thing. Um, the reason for that is creditors start to think, well, if you're bumping up against your limit consistently, you know, is this a risk factor that perhaps you're not managing things? You know, credit cards are not supposed to be, you know, permanent. You're in debt. You carry a balance all the time. Mm-hmm. So seeing that you're carrying a balance on one or multiple cards uh, that can be, you know, a high percentage of that limit, that can be a risk factor for creditors and that can have a negative impact on your credit score and your rating. See, my brain tells me that the opposite would be true. It means, mm-hmm. oh, you you maximize your credit, you pay it off each month, mm-hmm. you're a good risk, right? That yeah. I can up your limit and you're going to pay me back every time. Yeah, there is a magic number here. So they, you know, okay. they, they want to see activity and we'll talk about that in a bit. You know, having a card that's dormant, it doesn't do anything for you. Right. But the magic number is 50%. Okay. So, you know, if you know you're going to be charging $1,000 each month, you wouldn't want to have one card with a $1,000 limit. You'd want to have maybe two cards and you split that spending up so that you don't go past the 50% utilization. Okay. So that's really the only thing that I can do to control it. Yeah, it's, it's just basically keeping your, your balances down as much as possible. And it's not a case you'll be, you know, perfect credit every second of your life. You know, things will go up and down. Right. But again, the, to the point of the whole segment, these are kind of the sneaky things that you might not think about. Think you know, about. you might not think because I'm paying it off every month. You think you're doing everything right. But if that balance goes very high during the month, you might be getting a negative tick on your report. Got it. Uh, what about closing old accounts? Yeah, this one, talk about counterintuitive because many times when, you know, I have couples in my office and they say, you know what, we went to the mortgage broker and we wanted to clean up all our credit beforehand. And what we did is we looked at all of our accounts, there were a few of them that we weren't using too much anymore, and we closed those down. 
Yeah. And what they told me, I had this just last week, is the mortgage broker told them that was about the worst thing you could have done because what happens is you lose all of the history for those accounts. So as oh. soon as you close them down, it's like they never existed. So it's not about just paying them off mm-hmm. or paying them down. Yep. It's closing it. I yeah. no longer want this. Right. So if, okay. you're, if you're concerned, you don't want to show that you got, you know, five credit cards out there with very high limits, even if there's nothing on there, well, then get them to lower the limits, get them to bring them, you know, down to $1,000 or, or something like that. But again, if you close the account, you might have paid that card religiously for years and years. You never went above the 50% utilization. It is the gold star on your credit rating, you close the account, you lose the history. That is, and that is counterintuitive. I agree. Doesn't mm-hmm. make much sense. Yeah. What about co-signing debts? I know that we've we've helped folks out over the years, giving them a hand if they've gotten, uh, you know, just need a bit of a help, right? Yeah. It's a good thing to do. Makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just Not have, always. Yeah, you have to go into it with eyes wide open. And the way I say is, you know, never let anybody else ruin your credit. You know, it's your credit. If you're going to ruin it, do it yourself. But uh, when you co-sign a debt, you're agreeing to be responsible. And I'm sure you know this, Elaine, if, if you co-sign for somebody, it's 100% of the debt. It's yeah. not 50-50. It's not some fraction. And if that person who you have co-signed for starts to miss payments, you know, unless you are very diligent in making up those missed payments or paying it off in their, in their stead, um, you could have an impact on your credit report as well, even though it's nothing that you've done other than put your name on the dotted line saying that you've been responsible. By doing that, you've given the opportunity that your credit rating could take a hit if things go unpaid. Now, I know this is a little bit, I mean, it's connected to this, but if you got an idea of what I could do, how I could help somebody, what's the best way to help somebody? Because I'm not, I know I'm not the only one out there that wants to give folks a bit of help. Yeah. So I generally say the best way you can help people is by giving them the tools, you know, the information that they need to help themselves. Right. Nice. So if you can give an introduction to, you know, a licensed insolvency trustee, if you can say, I've heard the show dollars and cents where Blair and Elaine talk about debt stuff all the time, it's a free consultation. And I have a meeting a lot of times with, you know, it's, it's often, you know, young, young adults and sometimes their parents are there with them. And the parents have said, you know, we're prepared to pay off the debt for this person. We should all be so lucky. Um, but in that meeting, I'll be saying, well, wouldn't it be better if we can work out a consumer proposal, we can compromise the debt down to what's reasonable. If you want to help them out, help them pay off the proposal, but let's have some responsibility in this situation. Let's face mm-hmm. things head on and you'll save money for the overall family, but you'll also teach the young individual, okay, you know, this is not a get out of jail free card. There's still consequences, but it doesn't have to, you know, be life altering. A proposal you can pay off relatively quickly and move on. I should have talked to you. <laughs> should have talked to you or gone to the website before. Right. And uh, number five, applying for more credit. Yeah. So I think a lot of people understand this, that if you go out and you're shopping around, you know, say for a vehicle, for example, uh, the more times your credit rating gets checked, um, that can have a negative impact on your rating. So if you go to a dealership and they run a credit check and then you go to another one and they run a credit check, so on and so forth, all of those things are logged. And if you have too many of them in a short amount of time, it hurts your rating because creditors get nervous. Are you going all around town applying for credit? Is there a case that's all going to be granted? It's all going to get filled up and then the existing credit is not going to get paid off. So they get very nervous if you're, you know, they see a lot of hits on your credit, meaning checks, people, you know, basically checking your record to see if they're going to give you credit. And that's really them just looking at it without knowing any background information as to why you're doing it or how you're doing it or... Mm. Exactly. Yeah, that doesn't feel very good. Like, I don't have a whole lot of control over that, do I? Right. Well, what you do have control, and and this is what we recommend, a very clever strategy here, is if you are going to shop around a few places, say it's a car, you're going to go three or four different places, 
you go and pull a copy of your credit report yourself. When you pull it yourself, there's no impact. You're allowed to do it at least once a year, um, sometimes more frequently if you choose to pay a fee for it, but pull your report yourself and bring it, physically bring it to the people that you're looking for financing from. And then it's only if you decide to go forward with the deal, then get them to check your credit. So you have one hit rather than multiples. Listen, if any of this information resonates with you and you want to take some action, Blair Manton, Sands & Associates, it's easy to access him and the company uh, by calling 1-800-661-3030. That's for a free consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.